Well, good morning. For those who don't know, my name is Pastor Jason. I get to serve as the adult ministry pastor here at Friendship. And that means sometimes I get to open up God's Word and work through it with you. But before we get to that, there are a few things to make you aware of and something to pray over. The first you can see on the screen here, over in Prior Lake, maybe right now, um, they are commissioning a, a team that's heading down to Colombia with an organization called Hope for Venezuela. This is one of the organizations that we support, uh, one of the supported missionaries that Friendship Church has. Emily and Jesse Araujo uh, lead that ministry and they're members at the Prior Lake campus. And so that team is there being prayed over uh, for the trip that they're going on March 8th through the 17th. And I just, they reflect on the work that they'll be doing um, in, in sharing the gospel down there and bringing hope in the midst of kind of a chaotic um, place. I thought of Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We're thankful to the Lord for this team being faithful and responsive to God to go on this trip and, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So would you join with me as we pray for that team this morning? Father, you are so good. You are so gracious to us. God, you are good to extend your grace and call us into salvation and into the kingdom. And we are thankful that you are faithful to us. And because of your faithfulness, we get to participate in your redemptive work. And we are thankful this morning to you for those individuals on this team that have said yes to you in this specific season at this specific time to go to Columbia and to be a light for Jesus Christ there, to be witnesses to you, Jesus. And so we pray that you would strengthen them and protect them from the enemy, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would unite them by the bond of love in the Holy Spirit and Christ, that you would be magnified in all that they do on this trip. We entrust them to you and we commission them to the work that you have sent them out to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And speaking of missions and mission work, this next Sunday, Sunday, March 3rd, is our annual mission conference, mission weekend, mission Sunday, and we will have uh, roughly 25 tables out there in the narthex, and that's what it's called, by the way, from what I've been told. Is that right, Autumn? Yep, okay. <laughs> narthex. Um, so it's out there, and... <clears throat> There will be about 25 tables set with all missionaries that Friendship Church supports. You'll have opportunities uh, after both services to engage with those missionaries at their tables, hear about the work that they're doing, what God is doing uh, through their ministries. We'll have a missionary panel up here uh, interviewing some of them about uh, what, what God is doing during the service. And because of that, to protect some of the identities of our missionaries, we are not live streaming 
anything next week. So if you are live streaming now and you are able to make it to the service, we highly recommend that you come because it won't be live streamed and it won't be posted later. So you have to be in person to do it. The Prior Lake campus will be closed as well. So we'll be gathered as one church here at the Shakopee campus. And there will be a lunch served after the 1045 service, after this service next week as well. We hope you come back and we hope you engage with those missionaries to hear all the stories of what God is doing. So, so please come join us for that. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 14 and a fair warning, the slides that you just saw, that's all you're getting today, all right? No scripture slides and no sermon slides. So uh, pay attention. Uh, here we go. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible or a device that allows you access to the Bible, we have Bibles in the back um, set up there, signed there that says free Bibles. Feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, take it home with you. If you do own a Bible and you want to give it away to somebody that doesn't have one, great, do that. Other than that, um, use it and then set it back there so that we can bless other people with God's word. Um, but we're going to be engaging pretty in-depth with Mark chapter 14 this morning. So uh, situate yourselves there. The first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark feel like a race to the finish line. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels that we have. He's 16 chapters, uh, you know, compared to Matthew's 28 and Luke who's 28, John is 21. So Mark is short. Uh, he uses the word immediately all the time. He's moving us from place to place, often with briefer descriptions of the events than the other Gospels have. But all of that changes when we get to Mark 11 and on through the end of uh, chapter 16. As Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week, Mark slows way down. And he gives us an opportunity to reflect deeply on the final days of Christ on earth. And so we've titled this sermon series, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's this phrase that Mark slows down uh, for us in order to, to ponder that. What does it mean to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? In our passage today, in Mark 14, We'll see that this one who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus, is blessing in his people in that he is their suffering servant. Here in this passage, Christ explicitly says that his blood will be poured out for the sake of many. Now, the, the crowds have cried out already, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, and that may have originated, uh, them saying that may have originated from perhaps selfish reasons. We want him to build our kingdom or political reasons. We, we want him to establish uh, what we've always wanted politically. But what Mark shows us here is the real reason that we should be saying that phrase and it's because Christ is bringing salvation from sin purchased by his blood. And, and here's the kicker. It's for the very people that misunderstand him, reject him, rebel against him, and slander him. But we are getting way ahead. I'm giving you everything up front before we even read the text. So I'm going to invite you to stand up and hear from God's word. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. 
as we hear this, there's one question that we're going to be answering today, and that's this. What happens, what happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love? So this passage will help answer that question. What happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love? Bearing that question in mind, follow along in Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we are, we are weak. Our faith is often wavering, sometimes absent. Our hearts are prone to wander. Yet, Jesus, you still invite us to your table. You still extend your love to us. Your blood covers us. We recognize that we are not worthy, but your grace is greater. May your sovereignty, faithful love, and compassion be on display this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love. That's, uh, that's what Jesus is somewhat addressing here or showing what happens when, when failure meets God's love. There are kind of two major answers that we're going to talk about this morning. The first is, is this. God's sovereignty is comfortingly displayed. So we see God's sovereignty and it leads us to comfort. Uh, that's what happens 
when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love. God's sovereignty is displayed. Let's, let's take a look at that. Starting in verse, well, we see it in verses 12 to 16, but starting right there in verse 12. We'll revisit that. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Passover in Jerusalem was the place to be. And it was bonkers. Uh, Picture this. Okay. Chicago has put in some bids to host the Olympics, and we haven't gotten it. And if, if we haven't, well, they, I said we. If they haven't gotten it, uh, I don't think Minneapolis will get it. Sorry, if you ever try. Maybe, I don't know, but Chicago's better. So, um, but if the Olympics came to Minneapolis, came to our city, uh, people would be booking hotels and, and booking them out years in advance, right? And, and people would be looking at their homes near the epicenter of where everything's taking and, and making sure that they're converting it or doing what they need to do to, to do Airbnb and rent out homes so that we could take this massive influx of people coming into the city. That's what Jerusalem during Passover was like. You had, you had to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So you had tons of people coming from all different parts of the region and, and the world to celebrate Passover in, in Jerusalem. Um, there's this electric feel in the city. The, the size swells to, to a nice large size, larger than, you know, three, four times the population. So for the disciples to ask Jesus, hey, you know, where, where are we going to do the Passover? That's a real question. Like, hey, do, do we have a space? Can, can, we, can we do this? I mean, they, maybe they knew about his birth and they were like, well, we didn't plan that one out well, did we? We ended up in a stable. Uh, so where, where are we going to do the Passover? This shows us that Jesus has it sorted out. He, he had every detail ready to go. And this helps demonstrate God's sovereignty to us in the specific instructions that he gives. If we read on in verses 13 to 16, we see these specific things that God has tended to. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Yeah, that didn't really happen usually. Usually women were the ones carrying the, the jar of water. Uh, you, you rarely saw men doing that job. So, okay, our, our, uh, the radar's kind of on of, okay, this is a unique thing that probably God is behind and his sovereignty is on display. Um, and the translation says, uh, you know, carrying a jar of water will meet you. Um, in the original, it's very clear that they're not looking for the man. The man's going to find them. This man is going to find them. So again, God is sovereign in this process. Follow him, verse 14. And wherever he enters, say to the master of, of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. So again, this room is ready to go. Um, and God reveals and shows his sovereignty over all of the events that are about to take place. It's important that Mark demonstrates that Christ has control over all of this. It's helpful for us to recognize that. Why? Church, because Christ is not a helpless victim here as he approaches his betrayal and crucifixion. He is a victim of scheming and slandering and unjust punishment. He is a victim. 
he is certainly not helpless. He has prepared every step of the way. Part of why Mark records these specific details is to prepare us as readers to recognize that what Christ is about to go through, and we know what he's about to go through, it's part of the sovereign God's plan. God's sovereignty is on display here as he gets ready for what is to come. And Christ continues to show that sovereignty and his foreknowledge as the passage goes on. And and once again, this demonstrates for us that Christ is not helpless here. He's allowing this to take place because it will ultimately accomplish the will of the Father. We move into verses 17 through 20. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? And maybe a little bit better translated, certainly it's not me, with that little hint of self-doubt in the question. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now all this, this whole account is, is just caked with Old Testament allusions and references. That's not what we're doing today. I wish I could show you Zechariah and Exodus and some of the Psalms, all of that. But I'll just give you one example. Christ is fulfilling Psalm 41.9 here. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. King David had, had written that about... Somebody that had betrayed him. And David is a, is a type of Christ. He points to Christ. Christ ultimately fulfills the role of king uh, over God's people. And, well, yeah, David went through being betrayed. And now Christ, on a greater level, is going through the betrayal, even with one who has broken bread with me. Now, Mark goes into detail here. Again, he, he, has, he has slowed way down in his gospel here and goes into detail to show the absolute evil nature of what Judas is about to do. And if if you're reading Mark's gospel for the first time, you recognize from the passage before, nobody knows who the betrayer is. We know. Mark told us. He told us that Judas went to the high priest and figured something out to do. The disciples don't know. And Mark doesn't allow the disciples to know who that is, like Luke does. Luke allows the disciples in the story to know. It's a narrative function that, again, highlights, yeah, the disciples don't know this, but Christ does. Why? He's in control. He's sovereign over it all. And Mark goes into detail to show this, this, the evilness of this. Reclining at table, that was a e- eating. This table fellowship was already somewhat of an intimate relationship. They, I mean, Reclining at table, I don't think any of us would, would like to recline at table with anybody, all right? It sounds weird, sounds uncomfortable, you're, you're kind of on top of each other. It's just not how we eat. But it's a little bit more of an intimate, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's actually a good thing. But there's, it's just a little bit more of an intimate thing that you do. And furthermore, dipping, you know, dipping hands into the bowl, that's even further uh, of an intimate thing that you do. And so what Mark is, is trying to show is, look at how, like, Somebody that is this close to Jesus. Like, you, you are 
going to break fellowship with somebody that you're breaking bread with. That's, you, you don't do that. One who is dipping bread into the dish, that, that deeper sign of fellowship, but God's sovereignty is on display as Christ proves himself to be going into this ordeal with eyes wide open. He's not blindsided by the betrayal. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He foretells it and shows how it fulfills scripture. He foretells it and says to you, hey reader, this is not something that, oh, oh man, good move Satan, now I gotta do something else. This is God ordaining each and every one of these events as was predicted already in the scripture that God had revealed. Christ makes that clear in verse 21. A pivotal verse here. So he just made the implications about the, the heinous nature of the betrayal. And now he makes explicit just how out of line with God's will this act really is. Now, you have to bear with me, okay? I'm a little bit of a language, I wouldn't say nerd, but nerd. Um, and I, I pay attention to tiny detail. I'm not a detail guy, but I pay attention to tiny details in the text like... In verse 21, for the Son of Man. Why is that preposition there, for? It doesn't logically make sense. Uh, verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So logically, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. I, don't, I didn't see that connection. But what I did see was, Mark goes into detail here, explaining just how out of line with God's will this is. And then when we understand that, then the four makes a little bit more sense. So here's how out of line what Judas is about to do is with God's will. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He is aligning himself 100% with God's will. He is on one end of the spectrum. The Son of Man, despite the suffering, the betrayal, the denial that's going to happen to him, he has been aligned 100% to God's will. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Opposite end of the spectrum. Someone who is resisting God's will to the highest degree. Somebody who is, is rebelling against the Lord with the most rebellious spirit that you can rebel. You've got Christ on the one hand, and that there, there are words there in the Greek that aren't translated. For on the one hand, you have Christ on that spectrum. But on the other hand, you have this heinous act of betrayal of a close friend. And, well, really, it's betrayal of God in the flesh. We see God's sovereignty there. The Son of Man goes, as it is written... Christ is aligning perfectly with the will of God. Yet, in the midst of the highest degree of rebellion, we see the highest degree of rebellion ends up lining up with God's will. Because it is precisely the betrayal and the death of Christ that wins salvation. These things needed to happen. They've been foretold since Genesis 3 where God promises that he will send somebody to crush the serpent. He will crush his head and the serpent will bruise his heel. This is a fulfillment of what God has always promised. And so even in the most heinous act of rebellion, God's will won't be thwarted. God is sovereign in the midst of this. 
He's able to take the repudiation of his will and somehow use it to accomplish his will. Is that clear as mud? Because it's God's will, so it's about as clear as we can get on it. And we skip down to verses 27 to 30. We see again that Christ knows exactly what will happen. Once again, yes, he is a victim here. He'll be betrayed by a close disciple, slandered, abandoned by every last disciple. They completely disassociate with him. He'll be left alone to die. But church, remember, he is not a helpless victim to all of this. He's, he is telling us that this is going to happen. He's not blindsided by this. He's not helpless. He's willing. And let that sink in. He's willing, knowing full well what the betrayal will be, knowing full well what the denial will be, knowing full well what the loneliness will be, knowing full well what the crucifixion will be, He's willing to align himself with God's will for our sake. And that, that's going to lead into the second answer to our question of, of, of God's love. And we'll get there in a second. But, man, we see in verse 28, the comfort of God's sovereignty. Yes, I'll be b- betrayed and handed over. Yes, All of my disciples will abandon me. But, verse 28, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm going to restore that. I'm not going to write you off because you have disowned me. I'm not going to write you off because you denied me. Meet me in Galilee. When I'm raised from the dead, you'll understand. Meet me in Galilee. See, God is sovereign over it all. He knows what's going to happen. And so he tells him, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. After all that happens, after the dust settles, let's talk. Meet me in Galilee. I'll be there. This is not a chess game. Are there chess players in here today? Any chess players? A couple? Okay. There were only two in the first service, so we've got more here. I feel like we should have a first service, first, second service chess championship. I like, I like our odds here based on the hands that were up. In chess, um, and, and you know what? I'm qualified to speak on chess because I've seen a few episodes of The Queen's Gambit. So in chess, as you are playing, um, you're, you're playing an opponent, and they will do things that you go, oh, Okay, well, that changes how I may do my next move or five moves or six moves. And then their next move, they'll do something and you go, okay, well, that may change how I'm going to play this out. We do not have a cosmic game of chess going on here where Satan's like, Judas, I'm going to use Judas to betray Jesus and then your move, God, what are you going to do? This is not a chess game. This is not a good versus evil, who's going to win, back and forth. God is in control. Christ is the one who set up the details so that he could have the Passover, so that they could go to the Mount of Olives, so they could go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane so that they could be, so he could be betrayed there, and so he could eventually die for our sins. Christ has set it up. He's not being manipulated on a chessboard. 
you know, there's, you, you, can, you can fork in, check, in chess where you put a piece and, and either way you're going to lose one of these two pieces so, uh, or you're in, you're in check and you got to move so I can take your queen, How, whatever. You, you can do that. That's not what's happening here. Satan's not like, yeah, I, I got you. I forked Christ, so I'm, I'm going to take him. What are you going to do, God? God is in control. And there's comfort in God's sovereignty. Because church, I don't know about you, but if I were the disciples, I'd be looking at Christ, and this is his third time predicting that something bad's going to happen. And every time they haven't responded well, and I agree with them. I'd be like, what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're the Messiah. So for the disciples to hear those words and, and to have that self-doubt of, oh, one of you is going to betray me. Well, certainly not I, right, Lord? It's not going to be me, right? They can't even confidently say, no, it won't be me. They, they're, they're somewhat questioning it. They go, okay, well, our world's about to drastically change if this is true, Jesus. Like, their world is coming crashing down. But God is in control. The disciples did not see it, and Christ knew they would not see it until he was raised from the dead and met them in Galilee. So it is with us. This morning, you may be facing hardship. Evil may have befallen you or is befalling you. You may have disappointing or hard news from a doctor, from a friend. Whatever it is, you're not a pawn in some cosmic game of chess where who knows what's going to happen and, and who knows uh, how your hardship is going to play out uh, be, because Satan's against you and, and he might do something that's that super drastic and, and God won't know how to respond to that. You're not a pawn in the midst of this. God is in control. Now, we may not know how he's in control. We may not know what he's doing with that. Neither did the, did the disciples but he's the God who can raise the dead. So I'm going to put my money on him that despite what I'm facing, despite what I'm feeling about what I'm facing, God's in control. Hear that this morning. God's in control. Christ's suffering and death was not collateral damage in the war of good versus evil. Your suffering your hardship is not collateral damage in God ordaining the universe. Somehow, he can take the most heinous act of rebellion and still conform that to his will. Church, I guarantee, as real and as difficult as whatever it is that you're facing today, God can take that and he turns what is meant for evil and makes it good according to his will. He's able. Take heart. Cling to that. So what happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love? Well, we saw God's sovereignty is on display and there's a comfort there because God's in control. Now we'll end by looking at a shorter answer, a second answer to the question. Uh, what happens when human failure clashes with God's faithful love. God's sovereignty and his love overwhelm and overtake the human failure. 
That's somewhat of a Sunday school answer. Of course God's love is greater. Of course it will overwhelm and overtake the human failure. But let's see uh, how that plays out. When I say failure, I'm not trying to water down sin. Uh, it's sin. I'm, I'm trying to magnify the amount of sin. It's, it's epic failure. It's rebellion against the Lord. It's betraying him in Judas. It's denying him as Peter. And, and you know, Peter, Peter denied him three times. We're not talking about a lapse of faith there. We're talking about some form of apostasy. This is, this is epic failure that, that leads to these actions. It's sin that, that creates this, this failure that we're talking about. And we see that uh, the failure in the form of betrayal and rebellion in verses 17 to 20, as we've looked at where Judas uh, or someone will betray, and we know that it's Judas who will betray Christ. Now picture that. If you knew, okay, if, if you knew that uh, one of your closest friends was going to frame you for capital murder and you would get the death penalty for it, and then through that ordeal, 11 of your closest friends and relatives disassociated and disowned you. And if that were true and you knew that that was going to happen and you had a way to stop that from happening, would you stop that from happening? That's not exactly apples to apples, but sort of. Uh, Christ had to align his will with the will of the Father to be betrayed by somebody and then disowned by 11 others and die alone to save the very people that did that to him. And that's, that is an extravagant love that in God's sovereignty is able to overwhelm the failure, the epic failure of humankind. We saw that in verse 21. I said it was a pivotal Verse, verse 21, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Christ knows exactly what is to come. We saw verses 27 to 30 that, that Christ knew his disciples would abandon him to die alone. God in his sovereignty ordains the events so that they will take place. Every last detail God ordains for the suffering of Christ. This may not be a surprise to any of you. I hate details. I, 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 I have become sufficient in my detail handling. But, uh, well, I was going to say ask my wife, but don't ask my wife about how good or bad I am at details because that will open up a can of worms that I am not wanting to open. So don't do that, okay? I hate details. Even for something that I, I'm excited about, even for something that I want to do, even for, for something I can get behind, I, it, for, I'm just like, oh, do I, Ah, the details, fine. We'll, we'll figure out how we're actually going to do that, how we'll pay for it. We'll figure out the hotel we'll stay in, I guess. Fine. But, but, but something like this, where it's not something that I want to do, I particularly don't want to be abandoned by all my friends and left alone to die. But God ordains and oversees every, every I is dotted and every T is crossed so that the suffering Messiah would suffer. You'll find a man carrying water. Go to the house. The master has a room. Every last detail is tended to so that the suffering Messiah would suffer. In God's sovereignty and love, he ordained those details 
so that his son would suffer and die in order to overtake our human failure. He oversaw it all so that Christ would suffer for us, that he may win us salvation through his suffering. God's sovereignty and his love overwhelming human failure. This is nothing more than the gospel that hopefully we preach week in and week out here. Nothing more than the gospel that hopefully you hear us pointing you to that we find life and hope in. You'll notice, perhaps, that we skipped verses 22 to 26. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we skipped that portion because I wanted to, to, for us to first see the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God, as Mark wanted us to see that, as Christ prepared for the Lord's Supper. But also, I wanted us to think and really dig into who it was that Jesus began the tradition of the Lord's Supper with. Now, Mark is a sandwich guy, okay? Not like Jimmy John's, but he's a uh, sam like sandwich things. Like I'll put a story here, I'll put something in the middle, and then I'll put another similar thing on the other side, okay? So Mark's a sandwich guy. He, uh, he arranges this material in a sandwich. He has other sandwiches, uh, some, some tasty morsels throughout his gospel. But right before the Lord's Supper, it's the top part of the sandwich, he predicts his betrayal by one of the twelve then you have the meat, which is the Lord's Supper. And then right after that, the bottom part of the sandwich, uh, he predicts that every disciple will abandon him. Not a super positive sandwich. But church, let that sink in. Who was at the first Lord's Supper? One commentator sums it up for us this way. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors, verse 18. And spoiler alert, into verse 50, by cowards. Who by verse 50 in, in this chapter, the other 11 disciples flee. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. This is the gospel we preach. What happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love, obviously God's love overtakes it. God's grace runs deeper. Now verse 24 is a clear reference back to the original Passover in Exodus 24, where Jesus said, Jesus, Mark records, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many Christ is essentially saying he has become the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb from, from Egypt when, when the lamb was slaughtered and the blood covered over when, so that the angel would literally pass over those homes so that the lamb would experience the death and not the homes experiencing the death. In a few unique and expanded ways, Christ is the Passover lamb. First, he is he, the sign of the new redemption. In Exodus, God was freeing his people from slavery to the Egyptians in Christ. God is freeing all who trust in him by faith from slavery to sin. In Exodus, the lamb was used simply to cover up sin. In Christ, sin was atoned for and paid for fully and forever. 
Sin needed to be rightly judged. So the Passover lamb dies in the place of sinners. We call that a vicarious death. And so it is with Christ. It's a vicarious death, as he says in verse 24, for the sake of many. Again, the gospel we preach, Christ died in our place. His blood shed to atone for the sins committed by us. And so Christ receives the punishment of our sin in our place. And in return, we receive his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what happens when human failure clashes with the sovereign God's faithful love. God is willing to send his son to the cross in order to fix that failure, to atone for that sin and restore us back to him. But church, we must recognize that sometimes our hearts lean towards Judas. Other times our hearts may lean towards Peter. And in a selfishness or moment of pride, we are willing to betray or deny Christ as Lord and pursue what we want. I love how that same commentator puts this. Allow us to do a little bit of soul searching. In placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and defection, that sandwich, of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life include his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's son is not someone else's sin. The sin of Caligula or Nero or the legion of tyrants ever since. It's the sin of the tenants of his own vineyard. It's the sin of his own disciples. It's the sinner, sin of Peter and James. You ready for it? It's the sin of you and me. But God's faithful love is greater. When you celebrated Passover... Some of you are doing the Bible uh, read-through plan. You read through some psalms this week. Those are the Hallel psalms, the uh, Praise God psalms. Those are the psalms that would have been sung during this Passover. You read, you read I think it was 111 through 117. Well, Psalm 118 was the last that you would sing. So here in verse 26, Mark says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's a good chance that this was either the set of the Hallel Psalms or it was Psalm 118. So Christ, knowing about the betrayal, knowing about the denial, before they leave for the garden, what is left on the lips of the disciples who are about to betray Jesus? What's left on their lips? Well, let's read just the beginning of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, 
his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Yes, you are going to deny me. Yes, I'm going to be betrayed. Yes, you will succumb to fear. You will succumb to persecution. You will disown me. Yes, but this is not a table for merit. It's a table of grace because God's steadfast love endures forever. The very words that they sang in that hymn before they went to the garden and everything went downhill was his steadfast love endures forever. This is not about the faithfulness of the disciples. It's about the faithfulness of a God who's willing to go to the cross for us. I'm going to invite the the band to come on out as we prepare for the Lord's table and remembering what God has done for us. I want us, as we prepare our hearts for this, I want us to reflect on this short statement to help prepare our hearts to engage in communion. God's faithful love meets human failure every time the Lord's table is celebrated. God's faithful love meets human failure every time the Lord's table is celebrated. That's the beauty of the table. We examine our hearts. If if you know Jesus, you are welcome to come to his table. Peter the denier and the one who vehemently said, I won't deny you even if I have to die with you, couldn't handle the heat. The other disciples couldn't handle it. They were not sent away from the table. They were invited to the table. You are invited and welcome at the table if you know Jesus, if you've experienced his steadfast love, if you are trusting in him by faith, you belong at his table. And you are free in these few moments to to look at yourself, do the same soul searching the disciples did that said, certainly that won't be me, right, Lord? And go, okay, God, yeah, here is where I've done that. You have confidence to say that because Christ died for that. And you can receive his grace this morning. And we remember that and commemorate that at the Lord's table. For me, that means I, I don't like doing hard things. And there are some, sometimes I don't honor Christ as Lord in order to make my life more comfortable. Well, that's not right. I need to, to receive forgiveness from the Lord. And find the joy of his steadfast love. And we can do that at his table. And so take some time to reflect how you may have a rebellious spirit returning from the Lord in any way in your heart. Confess that with confidence to the Lord. And as we're singing in response, come and receive the elements and I'll be back out to lead us as we remember what Christ has done.